morning. Wow, it is uh, so humbling to be here in front of you guys this morning, and it's really cool watching the services come together and seeing all the preparation that goes in beforehand. Uh, you don't experience that everywhere, but here you do. There's prayer and thoughtful consideration for every song that's placed, and I'm thankful to um, I'm thankful to Gary and to our elders. Uh, I'm, I'm particularly help, uh, thankful to our elders for all the guidance that they've given me as I've gone through this process. It's been really a beautiful process. I was telling Gary this morning, I'm just so thankful for every step of the way. So um, I'm thankful for that. I'm also thankful that, um, you know, yesterday I begrudgingly took some counsel from my wife. <laughs> I don't think I always want to take that counsel, but she gave me some wisdom and some wording that I should use, and uh, I'm just very thankful for that, even though uh, my ears aren't always attuned to it. <laughs> but yeah, uh, and thank you for being here. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning. It's a joy to be a part of the body of Christ. Uh, this morning, we're going to be reading from the book of Psalms, and obviously we've had uh, several calls to worship from, uh, we've had our call to worship from Psalms. But the book of Psalms is an incredible book of poetry and prophecy and songs and lament. And uh, when we go to the Psalms, I think it's safe to say that normally we are looking for some sort of answer or encouragement to uh, a problem or a situation that we're in. I think that's a normal thing. Uh, and the Psalms, they are a great place to run to for that. They are a really great place to run to for that. From the moment that we are waking in the morning to when we're putting our heads down at night, we are bombarded by life, right? Phone notifications constantly going off, ads that we see on the streets as we drive our vehicles. Um, it's just constant bombardment, kids running around, things are hectic, right? Our job has so many requirements of us. And our minds and our bodies and our souls, they deal with the havoc of that everyday life. There is chaos from the outside, which is the broken world that we live in, in all of its troubles, but there's also the chaos from the inside. And that chaos from the outside looks like many things. It could be the wars that are currently going on overseas, or a bank account that seems to constantly be shrinking and shrinking. Maybe it's a marriage that's on the rocks or the loss of someone you love dearly. The chaos from the inside, which is the sin that you, you and I struggle with on a daily basis. There's lusting after what is not yours, nor yours to see. Cursing or gestures towards the person who cut you off. Deceiving others to make yourself look better. And impatience with your children. Those are just a few examples. I mean, just this week, I may or may not have flew off the handle because a child asked a question one too many times. Might have lost my temper. But all these things from the inside and out, they weigh us down. So what are we to do in the midst of constant bombarding, uh, bombardment and brokenness and sin from the outside, and sin from the inside. 
Where can we turn and where can we flee? And now we can go to that likely place that I just mentioned. We can turn to the book of Psalms. But I think that this is an unlikely psalm that you would probably run to. If you would, turn with me to Psalm chapter 38. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 467. If you'll read with me. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. Upon reading that text, you don't exactly get a warm and fuzzy feeling, right? Um, You might even feel a little bit uh, heavy after reading that. It doesn't feel encouraging, and it doesn't feel like, on the surface, maybe an answer to your problems. And if you're looking for a high point to feel great about in this psalm, there isn't really a one in there. This psalm is painful to read. And as a side note, it should be an encouragement by itself that this psalm is heavy and difficult because we don't always experience life on the mountaintops. So why this psalm, though? Well, to answer that, I want to point out a couple of things. First, I want to point out what this psalm is not about and what it is about. And I just want to be here for just a quick moment. First, here's what it is not about. 
First, this passage is not something to skip over. And if you're like me, sometimes if I don't find something particularly comfortable or I don't really understand it initially, I might skip over something like this, right? Especially if I'm looking for encouragement in those first few verses, don't really feel encouraging initially, right? So it's not something we should skip over. And we should never treat any part of Scripture that way either. The next thing that we need to keep in mind is that we must exercise caution in using this particular psalm as an arrow to point out to someone that their suffering is due to their sin. We know that sometimes our suffering is a result of sin. And this psalm shows that very clearly, as does 1 Corinthians chapter 11 or Acts chapter 5. We must remember, though, that we are not the ones to make those judgment calls. And our suffering is sometimes just because we live in a broken world. There are also times where suffering happens purely for the sake of displaying the works and glory of God. And for more on that, you can see what Jesus says in John chapter 9. Finally, this psalm is not meant to leave you in self-pity. It might be easy to read this psalm and justify our decision to live in isolation or accept that all of our problems are only unique to us or think that we are the only ones dealing with them. Whether the situation is brought upon by our own sin or unforeseen circumstances, some of us choose to dwell in our past problems and use them as excuses for any actions we take, especially our wrongdoing. So what is it about then? Well, it is an example of misery resulting from sin. This text showcases and provides a very clear context of what sin can and will do when we allow it to take root in our lives. It's devastating, and you should really feel the pain as you read it. This is also an example of how we should understand our sin. David's understanding of his sin is the template for how we should view the sins that we struggle with and what those sins do to us and to those around us. It is a script for us to use in the confession of those sins to our Father. Finally, as a preface to understanding this psalm, it gives us a roadmap in the midst of all the misery that is happening. So let's address all of that and dissect the text a little bit further. And to begin, there is no reason on the surface to think that this is not David speaking here in the midst of a dire illness that is devastating him in this chapter. David shows us his deep anguish and his deep pain. This is one of about seven penitential psalms, and penitential meaning sorrow or great regret for one's sin resulting in repentance. And you can feel that sorrow when you read it. Can you feel that? When you look through this, can you feel that sorrow and deep regret? It's exhausting, truly. It's exhausting to read that psalm. It makes you feel unwell. But as we go through these verses, in order to understand David's situation, you almost have to visualize exactly what is going on and I mean that literally, word for word, visualize what is happening. 
Imagine yourself in David's place, and you may understand and have a good idea of the effect of what sin has in one's life. That is the intention of this writing, so you can feel the pain, so that you can feel the agony that he is dealing with as a result of sin and how his whole being is affected by it. He recognizes the reproof. Excuse me. I missed an entire part. (laughs) Starting in verse 1, David claims his iniquity is deserved and he pleads for mercy. His reflection on his current situation drives him to confess his wrongdoing and that's what he's doing in verses 1 through 4. He cries out to God and pleads with him to withhold his anger, to withhold his wrath. But right here, David knows very clearly that the pain and the problems that are flooding his plate are brought on because of his own sin that is in his life. He sees the reproof and the chastening that he is receiving from God, and it's beyond overwhelming. He's gotten himself into this situation, and he recognizes that he cannot even move because it weighs too heavy for him. The only thing David has left to do in this instance is pray and plead for God to remove his hand of judgment that has come down upon him. And while we don't know the intricate details of what sin or troubles David was in, and I'll touch on that a little bit later, we do know, though, that by his own admission that he was in sin, and he knew that the physical and the mental struggles that were cascading upon him were because of such sins. David exclaims, there is nothing well within him. There's no soundness in his flesh nor health in his bones. And again, I just, I want to throw this out there. The picture being given is that his entire self is afflicted. All the way to his bones, the very structure of who he is and in his flesh is compromised. He attributes these problems because of God's indignation towards him. But, but why is there indignation towards him? Because sin. Because sin. And now David can't move. His problems have mounted. And there's nothing that he can do about it. He's so overwhelmed and without solution, he admits that he's lost all control. Can any of us relate to David yet? How did David arrive at this place of begging for mercy? What went wrong that caused all of this sorrow? Why does he feel crushed so that he cannot move? Of course, we already said the answer is sin, but it's, it's much more than that. See, again, we cannot presume what kind of sin David was repenting to God about, but it is safe to say that this was a sin that took deep root in his life. It probably wasn't just a moment of anger. It probably wasn't just a fleeting moment of telling a lie, right? No, he lived in this sin. He saw this and he lived in this sin. He harbored this sin, but little did he know that bit by bit and day by day, this sin was infecting every bit of him. Next, we see that David gives a very repulsive account of his wounds. 
To me at this point, after reading verses 1 through 4, I'm already looking for a little bit of reprieve in this psalm, right? I'm already kind of feeling that pain and that sorrow, but there's no reprieve here yet. It just goes further and further. The wording and the language that are used to describe the ailments that are afflicting his mind and his body are disturbing and gut-wrenching. I especially enjoy, um, well, maybe using enjoy isn't the right word, but I find it interesting. I find it interesting that he says his wounds stink and fester. Stink and fester. You see, this indicates that the effects of sin are causing rot and decay. It's spreading through his entire being. These words also indicate that he's been dealing with this sin for some time now. You see, initially when you get wounded, it doesn't stink. And it doesn't fester, right? It's not rotting initially. But these wounds have been here for a while. This sin has taken deep root in his life. Over time, there's rotting and stench, and this is the effect of harboring sin. And so then we see that David is left with nothing. He's humiliated. He's laid out prostrate before everyone to see. Everything going on is being observed by those around him. And we'll get to that a little bit more here in just a moment. But if we're being honest, you cannot hide such vile wounds with disgusting discharge. Not for very long, at least. And I know that's a very disgusting choice of words, but I use it here purposefully, right? It's to show that it's going to be noticed by all. And now in the midst of his weakness, he's humiliated and laid out for all to see. He's depressed, stricken with grief and anguish over his pitiful, unbearable situation. There is no end in sight. He has entered a black hole, an endless void of darkness, with nothing to grab onto and no light to see. That's what he's experiencing. There's no light left in his eyes. Again, I ask, have you felt this way before? David, then in verses 9 and 10, gives us a little bit of air, just briefly, just really briefly. Because by this point, we really are, we're gasping for air. And up till now, it's been spiraling out of control for David, plunging deeper and deeper into the abyss of pain and sorrow. And in verses 9 and 10, he is humbled and cries out to God. He's basically at death's door. His strength, his energy, his muscles, his bones, his whole being, everything has failed him. He exclaims, there's no longer any light in his eyes or in his life for that matter. Are any of you relating to this because I am. But now, now we can get a little bit of oxygen. And he drops two simple things that we need to remember. The first is that God already knows what we need and what we desire. It isn't surprising here to God that David wants to be rescued. Oh Lord, all my longing is before you. A second is that there is not a single complaint, moan, or groan that is hidden from him either. 
My sighing is not hidden from you. These are true, and they apply to you in your personal situation as well. Whatever it may be, our God is an intimate God who cares and knows every aspect of his created beings, of his people. How intimate, though, is God? That's a good question. Well, I mean, he did send his son to be born human, like you and me. He took on flesh. He walked. He talked. He ate. He drank. He knew life as a man. He even experienced pain and suffering like you and me. But unlike you, me, and David, Jesus had no sin that deserved that wrath. But in love, he chose to endure the wrath that we deserve for sin. And all of God's wrath was poured out on Christ. So he knows, he knows what it's like to feel the wrath and indignation from God. So to answer that question, that's how intimate he is. That's how intimate he is. That he would sacrifice himself for those whom he loves. And David acknowledges that right here. He acknowledges that intimacy that he has with God and that there is nothing hidden from him because he is so close and he knows all. But still, there's more distress happening after that. David's friends have abandoned him and his enemies begin to rise up here in verse 11 through 14. Call this the final blow. I really feel like this is kind of like that, that final moment here, right? Not only has he been struggling, but now he's got nobody and his enemies are around him. You see, when someone is in the midst of suffering, and this church is really good at it, we tend to rally around them, right? We tend to come around them and show them love. We, we do meal trains, or we give people rides, or we go and visit them in the hospital, or whatever the need may be, we surround them as a community and we help them out. You do this here at the church. You do this with your friends. You do this with your family. There are always those loved ones and friends that would come around and give aid in the midst of suffering. But not here in this chapter. Not now. Instead, we have a situation that looks very, very different than that. David's friends have abandoned him and his enemies are surrounding. All the people that David trusts and loves are gone. And those who seek to destroy him are drawing nearer. Friends and family are nowhere. And I want to just kind of differentiate a little bit here to give some help on the question of whether our suffering is due to sin or just because we live in a fallen world. And to kind of help understand where you might land in that, I want to pose this for you. I think we can use this psalm and I think we can use this situation to distinguish between those two. In the midst of David's sin, he's isolated. He's alone because his sin has pushed those whom he loves that were around him. It's pushed them away. It's created distance between him and his loved ones. 
It's created, it, it's caused them to want to move away. They want absolutely nothing to do with his sin. They don't want to be a part of it. David is a sinking ship and they don't want to go down with him. They don't want to be a part and they don't want to see the affliction that he is bringing upon himself in the midst of his sin. I think that can help us understand the difference between the two when we're dealing with suffering. This is just another result of sin. But to make matters worse, not only does he not have somebody there to help protect him, but his enemies are surrounding. And even though these enemies did not cause his initial grief, they didn't cause his sickness, they do desire to take advantage of him in the midst of his trials. They scheme, plot, and lay traps to take him down at his weakest point. And how does David respond to all of this? He can't. He's too weak and feeble. He cannot hear all the lies that are being told of him. He can't respond to protect himself. Yet, if you look at his wording here, it's actually geared a little bit more towards a choice. He's deciding also in this moment not to speak. He knows still that it wouldn't be wise attempting to protect himself to attain retribution. David first needs divine healing and first needs to be reconciled with God. Any act outside of that first happening would be pointless. He knows that vengeance is the Lord's and that it is better to sit patiently and know that God will handle justice in his timing. So here's David now, in the final seven verses. He leaves it all at the feet of the Lord. He suffered the arrows ripping through his flesh, and he can feel the feebleness of his bones. He's broken, hurting. He's humiliated, and there's nobody to come around and help him. Those whom he trusts are gone and his enemies are surrounding. Yet here, in the very end of the chapter, David's absolute desperation drives him to repent and request that God would act quickly on his behalf and deliver him from his miserable plight. He leaves it all at the feet of the Lord. And when you read it, you can't help but feel that there is a confidence that David exudes when he speaks those words, right? He's confident. Verse 15, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. He knows. He trusts. And he runs to God. That confidence. Man, where does he get that from? right? That confidence, despite whatever he's done up until this point, David now shows the faith that he has in God to respond in the midst of crisis. He sees his fault. He sees that he can't do anything about it except turn to God in faith that he will answer. He has solid reasons for this confidence, though. It's not a blind confidence, Alan Ross's commentary on the Psalms sheds a lot of light here. 
Why does he have this confidence? Because he knows that God will not let the wicked gloat, as we see in verse 16. And in verse 17, he knows that God is a saving God and will not let him die in grief. Yet, the most important piece of it all is found in verse 18. And it shows us the very main reason for David's confidence. By the confession of his sin, he knows that God will receive it and will bring about the end of his discipline. His fears, his guilt are now removed because he has turned away from his sin and is walking rightly and reconciled with God. By the confession of his sin, he knows that God will receive it. He has confidence in that. In verses 19 and 20, though, he expresses his concern to God regarding his enemies. Knowing that God would not allow for evil to triumph over him as he follows after what is good and as he follows after what is righteous. In the end, David requests God to be at his side. No longer does he desire and wish to hold on to and wish to harbor his sin. But at this crossroads that he is at, he desires God to be next to him. He desires his friend, his confidant, his good father and intimate Lord to be with him soon and at all times. He knows that the Lord will restore him and bring about his complete salvation. And God heard him. And God hears you if you run to him. So, my friends, where do we go from here? When in the midst of great sorrow and despair, what are we supposed to do with this heartbreaking passage and imagery given to us in this psalm? How do we apply it to our lives? How do we escape the devastation of sin? This text, I think, gives us Three points of direction to navigate us out of that devastation. First, this psalm gives us a correct view of sin. And here I have multiple questions, so just follow along as best you can here. It might be like rapid fire, but <laughs> you'll just follow along as best you can. My first question is this. Are you awake to the sin in your own life right now? Because you cannot answer any upcoming questions unless you first think about this one, right? Are you awake to your sin right now? And if you have no idea what sins you struggle with, then I would beg you to plead for God to have mercy on you, to reveal your transgressions. Answering this question should help to reveal your own standing with God. 
But once you answer that question, and once you recognize your sin, how would you describe it? How would you describe your sin? And I know that might seem a little odd to think about. It's kind of an odd question, but I ask it purposefully. How would you describe it? Does it deeply disturb you when you think about it? Do you describe your sin as David does? Do you describe it as stinking, festering, unsightly, disturbing? Do you describe your sin as oozing discharge and affecting and infecting your entire being? David wrote this psalm in this particular way with a particular purpose. And that purpose is to make you sick and to make you petrified of what sin can do when it takes root in our lives. It wreaks havoc. And the horror of it all is that it's worse than anything you or I can think of, anything that Hollywood or any author can contrive. It's worse than any horror film or book that you could think of. Because this has eternal consequences involved. These transgressions against a holy God have eternal consequences. Do you remember earlier when I told you to visualize and to hold on to the imagery of what is happening in this psalm? A man is lying here, weak, feeble, at the brink of death, prostrate, arrows stuck in him. It's been like this for a while. He hasn't just been laying there for the last minute, right? He wasn't just shot down. He's been laying there for a long time. His wounds stink and fester. His enemies are looking down upon him and are surrounding him. He doesn't have a friend nearby. He doesn't have a family member nearby. He's alone. Are you imagining that right now? Is this how you visualize your own sin? Friends, are you disgusted by it yet? Or do you view sin as no big deal? Do you attempt to use the grace of God as a crutch? It doesn't work like that. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 tells us this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then in verse 12 and 14, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Clearly, clearly, church, we see here that those who have been united to Christ will no longer have sin ruling them. It will no longer abound in their lives, but instead are made 
alive in God. And those that are made alive in God do not continue to live in such a way where they choose to offend him. I feel like I need to say that again. Those that are made that are made alive in God do not live in such a way that continues to choose to offend him. Instead, they live their lives, and instead they live every moment to honor and glorify him. It is worth noting that as we gain a right understanding of our sins, that David, throughout this psalm, doesn't blame his circumstances or his sin on anybody else. He blames it on himself alone. He doesn't blame his family. He doesn't blame his friends. He doesn't blame them for ditching him. He doesn't even blame his enemies. He doesn't blame the government. He doesn't blame anybody but himself. He humbles himself and solely takes responsibility for his sin. This psalm is a reminder of the gravity of our own transgressions against God. And it is a reminder that sin should never be taken lightly. The second thing, and this one's a little bit shorter. Second, in reading this psalm, it should drive us to remember our helpless and our broken state. Again, I have more questions for you. First, are you understanding of your inability to lift your own burdens? Are you understanding of that? Do you see that there is no possible way, none, no possible way, for you to remove the burdens brought upon you from your sin apart from God's mercy and grace? Remember verse 4, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. From the outset of creation until now, man has always been dead in their sin. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. The Lord says that the intention of every man's heart is evil from his youth. In Ephesians 2, 1, says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Dead means dead. It means there's no breathing, no thinking, no talking, no moving. We're not alive, but rather dead in our sin from the moment of our youth. So that's it then. There's nothing else we can do. We have no power to revive ourselves. Is there even any hope? It's kind of heavy when you think about it. But that really brings us to the most glorious part of the entire psalm. The psalm brings us to remember that no matter the gravity of our situation, no matter the gravity of our sin, this psalm reminds us and points us to our desperate need 
for a savior. David's enemies are around him. The ones he loves and trusts are gone and distant from him. He's broken, he's beat down. But he doesn't dwell in that misery, no. It's not an option for the one who trusts in their Savior. He has no other options, no other choices to consider. The only one left here, when all hope is lost, is that he calls out. He calls out to the one who saves. We are humbled when we recognize our sin. And just having such an ability to recognize our sin is an act of mercy from God above. When we realize the gravity of the situation, we know that we cannot act alone and that we need a Savior. And David displays that here in this psalm. Instead of being bitter, instead of questioning God's hand of judgment in his life, David instead chooses to trust in God for the cleansing of his sins and asks him instead to draw near. He's moved away from that sin. He's He's turned away from it and he's asking God to draw nearer to him. This psalm reminds us that we need and trust only in Christ. Let me say this though, church. Whatever you're dealing with, whatever personal situation you have going on, no matter how dark it might be, or maybe it's not dark, maybe it's something small, Right? Church, you can talk to God about it. He is intimate with his people. If you remember from Brett's sermon last week in in Revelation 8, he referenced there and in Psalm 141 that your prayers are like sweet incense to the Lord. He delights in them. Bring your hurts. Bring your deepest pains and your longings to God. Call out to the one who made a way for us to be reunited with him. You can talk to God about it. And I just want to add this in. Don't use it as a last resort. Don't use the gift that we have of prayer with God as a last resort. Run to the one who is nearest to you. Run. Through the work of Christ on the cross, he took on the sins of the whole world. He was humiliated in front of everyone. Flesh ripped from his body, spat upon, blood oozing in every part of him. And though he didn't have arrows piercing through him, he did have a crown of thorns placed on his head. And he did have nails put through his hands and his feet. His physical strength had faded and his body was failing. Do you see that comparison, though? Do you see that ever slight comparison that Psalm shows us of what Christ took on for us? 
It's not just David describing himself and what he's dealing with. He's describing what we've dealt with, but he's also describing the crushing effects of sin that our sinless Jesus chose to take on. First John tells us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and that he took on the wrath of God. It also says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers, sisters, if you're wounded, if you're broken, if your sins feel like a disease wasting you away, if you feel alone, hurting, suffocating, tired, crushed, ensnared, bogged down in a deep, dark hole, whatever it may be, that you are in the midst of. Remember and trust only in your Redeemer. David wrote this psalm as a reminder and to give you a template on how to approach God in the midst of a disturbing situation. There's a reason, remember I said there's We don't know what sin he's dealing with in this passage, but there is a reason here that we don't know the specifics of that sin. That's because this psalm isn't just for him, but it's also for you and I. So church, if you're tempted to skip a psalm, or if you're tempted to skip a passage like this, one that makes you uncomfortable, one that you might not understand. Do you see how it is still for your edification? When you find yourself stuck in sin and you find yourself alone and afraid because of your sin, even though this sin is heavy, consider though how this psalm can still help you. So where do we start? Where do we start? Repentance. We start with repentance. If you look back at verse 18, it says, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. It starts with repentance, church. It's that, it's that simple. It's really that simple. So see that here and now that God is calling out to you in the midst of your anguish, in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your trials. He's calling out to you to save you from the destruction and the devastation of sin in your life. The time is now to act in faith, remembering also that your faith is a gift from God himself. Jesus is the abundant one in whom we can find all life. Though you are not worthy, he offers his abundance to those who call upon him.
Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for even these words that seemingly on the, on the surface are just too hard to handle sometimes. But Lord, we know that every word is for our good and for our edification. So Father, this morning we repent and we ask you to draw near to your people. We thank you for this opportunity to be together. In your name we pray. Amen.